Chapter Four, Part Six of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. Part Six of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part Six. That brings us to the Jennings claim. That is the claim that he told Mr. Woodward about when he wanted to sell out in the first place, and that is the claim that he told McVeigh and the Postmaster General about. Strangely enough, and wonderfully enough, we find that claim in this very book. That shows whether this was a private book or whether it was a book kept for the accounts of Dorsey. Now, by looking at the post office reports, I find that $994 was paid to Verdell for Jennings on the 14th day of April, 1880. And the question I ask is, did he keep two sets of books at that time? He produced in court a book of his own kept at that time with the Jennings account in it. The book that was copied had the Perkins account. And why? Because it was a special account in which Verdell was interested. They have failed to prove that there was in that other book any account in which Dorsey was necessarily interested, except the account kept with Verdell showing Verdell's transactions with Dorsey. We now come to the testimony of Mr. Gibbs. Mr. Gibbs says his wife copied a journal between Christmas 1879 and the 1st of March 1880. Verdell says that she copied the journal and the ledger both. The witness, Gibbs, gives the color of the book. He says it was not red. It was either brown or black. Mr. Gibbs remembers nothing about the Smith account whether it was large or whether it was small, he finally swears that he does not really recollect anything about it, except that Rodell brought the book there and said he wanted to get a copy made to send to Dorsey in New York, and that he returned the book and the copy to Rodell. He swears that he remembers as names in the book Smith, Jones, and S.W. Dorsey, and M.C. Rodell. Those were all that he could think of. He does not remember the name of John H. Mitchell. On page 2646, he says he believes that Rodell came to him and asked him during the trial if he recollected the name of William Smith, and he swears that when Rodell asked him if he recollected the name of William Smith, he distinctly told him that he did not. Then he, Rodell, asked him if he recollected the name of Jones, and he swears that he told Rodell when he asked him that question that he did not. I read from page 2646. I tried not to remember anything of this. How can a man try not to remember? What mental muscle is it that he contracts when he tries not to remember? That is a metaphysical question that interested me greatly when the man was testifying, 
for he said he tried not to remember. Why did he try not to remember? As Jennings, I didn't want to be called into court if I could possibly help it, and for quite a long time did not mention the fact that I knew anything of the books. But when I was called into court, I thought of all the circumstances connected with the time that I copied the books, and a few days ago, or a week ago, in going home one night, and thinking this thing over in my mind, and thinking of everything I could think of, my mind reverted to a conversation I had had at the time, laughing and looking over the books. It was not only one book, then. Back to Jennings. And I wrote a great many letters and read a great many names. They must have been in the letter books, and was laughing about the peculiarity of the names, and even made the remark, There is even Smith and Jones in it. What a wonderful circumstance! In copying the books and making an index of the three letter books, he found Smith and Jones. The difficulty would have been not to find Smith or Jones. That is the evidence of that man. When Wardell first went to him, he told Wardell distinctly, I remember no name of Smith. I remember no name of Jones. And then he waited until Wardell went on the stand and swore that he copied those books and that the names of Smith and Jones were in them. And then his memory was refreshed, and he came here and swore that the names Smith and Jones were there. All of a sudden it came over him like a flash, and he subsequently had the conversation with his wife. Gentlemen, you may believe it. I do not. Not a word of it. He is mistaken. He has mistaken imagination for memory. He has mistaken what Verdell told him now for something he thinks happened long ago. He took the letter books, too. Maybe there is where he found some of his strange names. Verdell says, in swearing to the letter, which he says was written by Dorsey to Bossler on the 13th of May, 1879, that he, S.W. Dorsey, took that book, all his own books that were not used for the mail business, and boxed them up. When? In 1879. Mr. Kellogg swears that after they were boxed up, they were sent to New York. When? In 1879. And yet Rodell swears that between Christmas and New Year's 1879, those books were at the house of a Mr. Gibbs to be indexed. It will not do. And Rodell swears that he had the letter book containing the letter of May 13, here in 1881, when he went to McVeigh. And yet, according to his own testimony, that book was sent to New York in 1879. And he swears that the three letter books, and I will call your attention to them after a while, that he had there commenced on the 15th of May, and ended, I think, in April or May of 1882. He swears that the letter written by Dorsey to Bosler was written on the 13th of May, 1879. And then he swears that the first letter in the three-letter books was dated the 15th of May, two days afterward. So he had not the book here. I knew he did not have it. 
because if he had had such a book with such a letter he would never have gone to new york to steal a book you would have stolen that one tory took charge of the books january twenty seventh eighteen eighty and he kept them till the first of may eighteen eighty in the boreal building and then at that time moved to one forty five broadway and kept them there until the last of april eighteen eighty two now gentlemen i will come to those red books again in a moment here is a little piece of evidence about the books you know it was the hardest thing in the world to find out how many books this man had how many times they were copied who copied them and what he did with the copies and he got us all mixed up counsel for the prosecution the court counsel for the defense none of us could understand it how many books did you have what did you do with them well i took them to new york no i did not i had some of them here finally i manufactured out of my imagination a carpet sack for him i said didn't you take those books over to new york in a carpet sack and he said yes he did he jumped at that carpet sack like a trout at a fly let me call your attention to some other evidence on page two thousand six hundred thirty seven near the bottom donnelly is testifying question was it an exact copy of the book answer it was not question in what did it differ from the book you were keeping answer there were some items left out question what accounts did you leave out answer i left the william smith account out question what did you do with that amount in order to balance the books now i want you to pay particular attention to this answer answer my recollection is that i carried it to profit and loss question on the books or on the balance sheet answer on both now remember these were the books made out to fool the committee i suppose there are some bookkeepers on this jury i suppose mr green knows something about bookkeeping and mr evans and mr crane and mr gill i do not know but you all do and you know that when you carry an amount to profit and loss you do not throw the name away you keep the name if you have charged against robert g ingersoll five thousand dollars which you never expect to get and you want to charge it to profit and loss you make the charge and you put my name against that you put profit and loss against robert g ingersoll's debt everybody that has ever kept a book knows that if you carry an amount to profit and loss you rewrite the name of the person who owes the debt so that when he says my recollection is that i carried it to profit and loss there would be a name twice in the book instead of once if it was simply in the book once it would be william smith debtor eighteen thousand dollars but if you carry that to profit and loss you must credit profit and loss by this william smith amount and consequently get the name in the book twice instead of once and that is what they call covering it up they were so afraid 
that somebody would see an account against William Smith in one part of the book, that they opened another account in the profit and loss business and put it in again. That would be twice. Now let us go on a little. Question. Were there any other accounts transferred in the same way? Answer. I rather think there were, but I am not certain. Question. Did you make the book's balance on your copy? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. How long were you working on that copy? Answer. I was working on it two evenings and all of one night. Now, recollect, in the copy that he made, he carried the account of William Smith, and maybe Jones, he does not remember, to profit and loss. Now let us take the next step. Let us go to page 2269. This is as good as a play. Donnelly swears that when he made the first copy, he carried the William Smith account and some other to profit and loss. Burdell swears that acting upon the hint of General Brady, he got a man to do what? To make another copy and leave out the items that had heretofore been charged to profit and loss. Donnelly swears that he balanced the books, and he is the only man that ever did balance the books, according to the testimony. After Rodell had been subpoenaed to appear before the Congressional Committee, he got another man, whom he swears he put to work on the books, designated the entries to be left out by drawing a pencil mark through them, that he told him to make up a new set of books leaving out those entries. But to leave the books so that they would balance, taking the entries that were stricken out, and also the same amount had been carried to profit and loss, and leave them entirely out. Burdell swears that prior to that time these accounts had been carried to profit and loss, and that he struck out their credits to Dorsey. Then the evidence as it stands is this. Burdell swears that Mrs. Gibbs copied their journal and ledger. Gibbs does not swear it, but Burdell does. That makes four books. Then he got Donnelly to make another set of books with the William Smith and Dorsey accounts carried to profit and loss. That makes six books. After he had been subpoenaed by the committee, he got another man to make a new set of books and leave out the William Smith and Dorsey accounts and the profit and loss account, and that makes eight books. And there we are so far as that is concerned. Now, gentlemen... I have come to one other view of this case. I hope you will not forget, because I do not want to speak of it all the time, that this man Burdell swears that he had the original letterpress copy of that letter which he says Dorsey wrote to Bosler. Do not forget that. He says he had that before he went to New York to steal the red books. Do not forget that and that he gave that testimony away. Do not forget that. That he says he had it copied by Miss White, and they do not introduce Miss White to show that she copied it. Do not forget that. Do not forget, too, that he had, when he was there, the tabular statement in the handwriting of S.W. Dorsey. Mr. Ingersoll resuming. Gentlemen, on page 2286, 
Mr. Wardell gives the contents of a letter which he says Dorsey wrote to him the night he, Wardell, left New York, and when he says he had the book with him. He swears, you remember, that afterwards Dorsey tore up the letter. Let me read you the letter as he says it was written. The letter started out by stating that he did not believe the report that had been brought to him in reference to myself, and that he also believed the affidavit story to be a lie. He pled in the letter for the sake of his wife and children and himself and his social and business relations and the friendship that had long existed between us not to do anything for his injury, for God's sake to reconsider everything that I had done and take no steps further until he could see me. It was in that strain, simply begging me not to do anything further until he could see me. Now let us analyze that letter, keeping in our minds what Verdell has sworn. Verdell has sworn that when he went to the Albemarle Hotel, he told Dorsey what he had done, that he had had the conversations with McVeigh and James. Let me call your attention to the dispatch from Jersey City. First, Dorsey wrote to Verdell that he did not believe the report that had been brought to him, that had been brought to him, he could not have used that word brought if Rodell had been the bringer. If Rodell had made the report to him in person, he could not have written to Rodell, I do not believe the report that was brought to me. The use of the word brought shows that someone else told him, not the person to whom he wrote. The report? What report? There's only one answer. The report that Rodell had been in consultation with the government. He writes to Verdell, I don't believe that report that has been brought to me. And yet when he wrote it, if Verdell's testimony is true, he knew that Verdell had given him that very report, and he knew that Verdell would know that he, Verdell, had told Dorsey that very thing. Second, that he, Dorsey, believed the affidavit story to be a lie. There is again in this horizon of falsehood, one little cloud of truth. Wardell had not made an affidavit. He had told James McVeigh, Woodward, and Clayton what you know, but he had not made any affidavit. And when he was charged, if he was, with having made an affidavit, it delighted him to have one little speck of truth, just one thing that he could honestly deny. That was the one thing. He had not yet made an affidavit. Third, Dorsey pled with him in the letter for the sake of his wife, children, himself, his social and business relations, and the friendship that had long existed between them, not to do what? Not to do anything further. According to Verdell, he, Dorsey, told him in the letter he did not believe he, Verdell, had done anything. Verdell swears that he wrote to him in the letter that he did not believe the report, that is, that he had yet done anything, and then wound up the letter by begging him, for God's sake, not to do anything further. How came he to use the word further? Don't take any further steps. I know that you have not taken any step at all, but do not, I pray you, take any further steps. That letter will not hang together. Dorsey swears he never wrote it. 
Finally, the letter comes down to this. I don't believe the report. I do not believe you have done anything. But for God's sake, do not do anything more. It is like the old Scots verdict when a man was tried for larceny. Jury found him not guilty, but stated at the end of the verdict, we hope the defendant will never do so again. The first part of this letter shows that Darcy did not believe that he had done anything. The last part of it shows that he did believe that he had done something and that he must not go further. No one can tell why he introduced the word further into this letter upon any other hypothesis. Now I read to you from page 2287 what Rudell says happened at the Albemarle Hotel. He charged me with holding interviews with Mr. James, the Postmaster General, and the Attorney General, and asked me what I meant by it. I told him my action was in his behalf, that I had been keeping up with the newspapers and knowing the facts in regard to this mail business. What I had done was done in his behalf. That is, he, Verdell, did not deny that he had these conversations did not deny the report, did not deny that he had met the Attorney General and the Postmaster General, but said, My action was in your behalf. And then, according to Burdell, after that, Dorsey wrote him a letter in which he said, I do not believe the report, although Burdell had made the report to him himself. Maybe that is the reason he did not believe it. Now let me read to you the conversation on his return from New York and see how it agrees with the letter. It is on page 2288. Mr. Dorsey immediately brought up the conversation that we had had over in New York and what I had done by going to see Mr. McVeigh and asked me if I intended to ruin him. I said, no, I did not. It was not my intention to ruin him. It was my intention to help him out of what I thought to be a bad difficulty. Question. What did he say? Answer. He then asked me if I had done anything further since I had left him. Yet in the letter he wrote him from the Albemarle Motel, he said that he did not believe the report and did not believe that he had done anything against him. The first thing he asked him when he got here was, Have you done anything further against me? I said, No, I had not. I had not been near Mr. McVeigh. He then says, Well, how shall we get out of this? I says, Mr. Dorsey, I will do anything that I can except to commit perjury. A very natural remark for Mr. Burdell to make. He would do anything but that. That testimony shows that Dorsey never wrote the letter which Burdell says he did write from New York. That testimony shows that they did not have the conversation in New York that Burdell says they had. That testimony shows that they did have exactly the conversation which Mr. Dorsey swears they had. Now I come, gentlemen, to the affidavit of June twentieth, 1881. I would like the letter of July 5, 1882, which is on page 3,733. You understand this affidavit was made in consequence of the conversation 
as he says that he had with dorsey after dorsey came back from new york in which he said he would do anything except commit perjury and when dorsey told him damn it what does that amount to when a friend is involved i would not hesitate for a moment consequently he burdell swears that he made up his mind for the sake of friendship to swear a lie for mr dorsey that is what he says now on the fifth of july eighteen eighty two while we were in the midst of the other trial and when mr burdell as he says contemplated going over to the government and when he would not put evidence in our hands against himself he wrote this letter quote, july fifth eighteen eighty two senator what i am going to say here may surprise you while judging from certain circumstances that to me are easily to be seen you may not be taken by surprise to commence with this it will be necessary to go back about a year to the time when looking forward to the inevitable result of the star root manners i started to put myself in accord with the government at that time i had no thought of being included in any prosecution or indictment supposing that as an agent i could not be held criminally responsible had i for one moment thought it possible nothing could have changed my mind even anxious as i was to benefit you the consequence was i listened to bosler and did what i will ever regret first because of the unenviable notoriety given me in the consequence of doing what he persuaded me to do End quote. who persuaded him mr bosler he states that on the fifth of july eighteen eighty two when as he said he had made up his mind to go over to the government and when he would not willingly put a club in our hands with which to dash out his brains quote, second because let this case go as it may i am still left under a cloud End quote. that is a pitiable statement that man under a cloud quote, both with your friends and acquaintances and the public generally End quote. here comes gentlemen the blossom and flower of this paragraph quote, and that too almost penniless End quote. the letter goes on quote, these are stern facts and cannot be ignored while i had continued acting with the government my reputation would have been clear and no doubt been appointed to a good position End quote. the government must have promised the gentleman an office when he went in june eighteen eighty one to woodward and clayton and to the attorney-general and the postmaster-general according to this letter among other things he was to have an office the steamboat route was to be reinstated the jennings claim was to be allowed his father-in-law was to get a clerkship and according to this letter he also was to have a position that is civil service reform what does he say quote, at least i have every reason to believe such would have been the result End quote. he would have had an office he has every reason to believe why they must have promised it to him quote, now this brings us to the present time i have an opportunity to redeem myself and i think it best to do so 
as by doing so I can be entirely relieved of the indictment. End quote. The government then must have promised him in 1882 that the indictment should be dismissed against him. Is it possible that he would tell a lie, gentlemen? Is it possible the prosecution will say that he lied on the 13th of July, 1882, but in 1883, having met with a change of heart, he told the truth? No. For in taking this step, let me say this. It is the result of much thought and also preparation. End quote. I think so. The preparation of several papers. For I have realized the fact that all you and Bosler desired was to use me, and when no longer needed, I could go to the devil. End quote. Well, I think that's where he has gone. For therefore I have concluded to be used no longer and propose to look out for myself. Today I am putting things in order so as to commence right tomorrow. I regret this on your family's account, but I too have a family and owe it to them to put myself right. End quote. You see, gentlemen, he wanted to leave an unspotted reputation to his children. For I deem it as being due to you that I should give you notice of my intention. Very truly, M. C. Rurdell. End quote. Now, gentlemen, he comes on the stand and swears that he made this affidavit not being over-persuaded by Bosler, but because Dorsey, with tears and groans, besought him to make it. Yet on the 5th of July, 1882, he says he made it because he was over-persuaded by Bosler. And he says, too, had I remained with the government, my reputation would have been clear, and I have every reason to believe I would have had a good position. He says, I have another opportunity to be entirely relieved from the indictment. These gentlemen say he never was promised immunity. That simply shows you you cannot believe Mr. Rodell when he is not under oath, and what he has sworn to here shows you you cannot believe him when he is under oath. This ends chapter 4, part 6 of 24.